0: section nineteen of life of sir walter raleigh by louise creighton this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter eleven conspiracies against james the first the disfavour with which raleigh was regarded was shown amongst other things by the way in which he was deprived of his london house durham house was situated in the strand It had originally belonged to the bishops of Durham, but had been resigned to the crown in the time of Henry VIII. In 1584, Queen Elizabeth had granted a lease of the house to Raleigh, who spent much money in repairing it. Immediately on James I's accession, the bishop of Durham claimed the house as its rightful owner, and Sir Walter Raleigh was ordered by royal warrant to deliver quiet possession of it to him. He was bidden to clear out with all his goods in a fortnight a hardship of which he bitterly complained for he had stocked the house with provisions for forty persons and hay and oats for twenty horses for the spring some years afterwards in 1608 on the site of the yard and tumble-down offices of durham house arose a mighty building founded at the suggestion of robert cecil and called the new exchange below were cellars in which to store goods and above a well-paved walk with rows of shops the place became a fashionable resort and is often spoken of in the plays and other writings of the day there were many discontented minds in england on the accession of james i and a plot greeted the new king at the very beginning of his reign the most striking thing about this plot is its entire futility the truth is that there was no great cause to struggle for, and only small men tried to find occupation for their restless brains by plotting. The Catholics had hoped much from the accession of James I, but as yet had obtained nothing. One William Watson, a secular priest, a vain foolish man, who was chiefly influenced by bitter animosity to the Jesuits, had struggled to make himself the mouthpiece of the Catholic gentry, and gain promises of favour from james but the king was in no hurry to do anything and watson in his impatience to obtain distinction began to talk over his grievances with other catholics the chief of his confidants were sir griffin markham a catholic gentleman and george brooke the younger brother of lord cobham who though a protestant was quite ready to have a share in any mischief the idea of the conspirators was to gain possession of the king's person and then obtain from him such promises as they desired a number of catholics were drawn into the plot and even lord de wilton was persuaded to join it he was a brave impetuous young nobleman son of lord de wilton who had been lord deputy in ireland when raleigh fought there he was a puritan and was persuaded to join this catholic plot on the plea that perfect tolerance was to be extorted from the king for Catholics and Puritans alike. The plot never reached any important dimensions. By the end of June, the government was aware of its existence, and the conspirators fled from London, but were taken one by one. The examination of the prisoners brought to light the existence of another conspiracy, in which Raleigh's enemies accused him of having a share. The whole story of this conspiracy is covered with mystery, and the real truth about it will probably never be known. Suspicion was at once directed against Lord Cobham by the fact that his brother was one of the conspirators in the Catholic plot. Raleigh was at that time in attendance on the court at Windsor Castle. One day, in the middle of July, he came out onto the castle terrace, ready to go hunting with the royal party. As he paced the castle terrace, Cecil came to him and bade him stay, that he might attend upon the lords of the council chamber who wished to ask some questions. In answer to these questions, Raleigh told the lords of the council that he knew nothing of any plot to surprise the king's person, nor of any plot contrived by Lord Cobham. Shortly after this, Raleigh wrote, first to the lords of the council and then to Cecil, saying that he believed Cobham had had dealings with Ehrenberg, the ambassador who had just come over from the Archduke Albert. From Durham House, he had seen Cobham rode across the river to a house where a well-known agent of Ehrenberg's, Renzi, lived. This letter of Raleigh's was shown to Cobham and excited in him violent anger against Raleigh. He thought Raleigh had betrayed him. In reality, his brother, George Brooke had already made known his connection with Aremberg. Writing about this letter afterwards, Raleigh says, The same was my utter ruin. I did it to do the king's service. Cobham now looked upon Raleigh as his bitter enemy. In his examination he confessed that he had conferred with Aremberg about receiving money from the king of Spain to be distributed amongst the discontented in England, but he said that his chief instigator in his dealings with Spain had been sir walter raleigh immediately after this statement of cobham's raleigh himself was committed to the tower then followed the examination of all the supposed conspirators it went on through the remainder of july and nearly the whole of august to try and discover the truth of the matter out of the confused and contradictory answers received is a hopeless task both george brooke and cobham seem to have answered without any regard to truth they contradicted themselves and enlarged upon their first statements in the most reckless manner to found any charge against raleigh upon their statements would be most unjust clearly it was their desire to ruin him and if possible by accusing others to save themselves it is difficult to discover what cobham had really plotted to do he seems to have chafed at the supremacy of cecil and the howards with the king and to have hoped by some change of government to have the pleasure of humbling them he thought of trying to raise the Lady Arabella Stuart to the throne. He negotiated with Aramberg before his arrival and obtained the promise of money from him. After Aremberg's arrival, he continued his intercourse with him and even offered to go to Spain with a view of persuading the King of Spain to listen to his projects. He was accused of having talked of destroying the King with all his cubs, but this statement George Brooke afterwards denied on the scaffold suspicions were at first directed against Raleigh on account of his well-known intimacy with cobham as well as by the fact that he was known to be extremely discontented with the state of affairs generally and with the treatment which he had received he probably knew more of cobham's plottings than he cared to disclose but there seems no evidence that he had shared them he had been offered some of the money which aremberg promised cobham but had refused it at once It is not likely that a man of Raleigh's ability, if he had plotted at all, would have plotted in such a feeble manner as did Cobham. He may have talked over with him possible courses to take, with a view of recovering power and influence, but considering the hatred with which he regarded Spain, it is not likely that he would have entered into negotiations with the Spanish court. It is well known that the Spaniards always regarded him as their bitterest foe in England. God doth know, he says, writing to the lords of the council, that I have spent 40,000 pounds of mine own against that king and nation, that I have been a violent persecutor and furtherer of all enterprises against that nation. Alas, to what end should we live in the world if all the endeavors of so many testimonies shall be blown off with one blast of breath or be prevented by one man's word? CONFINEMENT and the accusations which were brought against him so told upon his health and spirits, that after he had been in the tower a fortnight, he tried to put an end to his life, but fortunately without success, for he only inflicted a slight wound from which he soon recovered. In a long letter which he wrote to his wife, he bid her farewell. He explained his reasons for this attempted suicide. Receive from thy unfortunate husband, he writes, these his last lines, these the last words that ever thou shalt receive from him, that I can live never to see thee and my child more, I cannot. I have desired God and disputed with my reason, but nature and compassion hath the victory. That I can live to think how you are both left a spoil to my enemies, and that my name shall be a dishonor to my child, I cannot endure the memory thereof. Unfortunate woman, unfortunate child, comfort yourselves, trust God, and be contented with your poor estate. I would have bettered it if I had enjoyed a few years. Thou art a young woman, and forbear not to marry again. It is now nothing to me. Thou art no more mine than I thine. To witness that thou didst love me once, take care that thou marry not to please sense, but to avoid poverty and to preserve thy child. For myself I am left of all men that have done good to many. All my good turns are forgotten, all my errors revived and expounded to all extremity of ill. All my services, hazards and expenses for my country, plantings, discoveries, fights, councils, and whatsoever else malice hath now covered over i am now made an enemy and a traitor by the word of an unworthy man he hath proclaimed me to be a partaker of his vain imaginations notwithstanding the whole course of my life hath approved the contrary as my death shall approve it woe 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 be unto him by whose falsehood we are lost he hath separated us asunder he hath slain my honour my fortune, he hath robbed thee of thy husband, thy child of his father, and me of you both. O God, thou dost know my wrongs. But my wife, forgive them all as I do. Live humble, for thou hast but a time also. God forgive my Lord Harry, for he was my heavy enemy, and for my Lord Cecil, I thought he would never forsake me in extremity. I would not have done it to him, God knows. But do not thou know it, for he must be master of thy child and may have compassion of him. Be not dismayed that I die in despair of God's mercies. Strive not to dispute it, but assure thyself that God hath not left me nor Satan tempted me. Hope and despair live not together. I know it is forbidden to destroy ourselves, but I trust it is forbidden in this sort that we destroy not ourselves despairing of God's mercy. The mercy of God is immeasurable. The cogitations of men comprehend it not. In the Lord I have ever trusted, and I know that my Redeemer liveth. For is it from me to be tempted with Satan? I am only tempted with sorrow, whose sharp teeth devour my heart. O God, thou art goodness itself. Thou canst not but be good to me. O God, thou art mercy itself. Thou canst not but be merciful to me. Then, after a few words about his debts, he goes on. O intolerable infamy! O God, I cannot resist these thoughts! I cannot live to think how I am derided, to think of the expectations of my enemies, the scorns I shall receive, the cruel words of the lawyers, the infamous taunts and despites to be made a wonder and a spectacle. O death, hasten thou unto me that thou mayest destroy the memory of these, and lay me up in dark forgetfulness. O death, destroy my memory, which is my tormentor. My thoughts and my life cannot dwell in one body. But do thou forget me, poor wife, that thou mayest live to bring up my poor child. I bless my poor child, and let him know his father was no traitor. Be bold of my innocence, for God to whom I offer life and soul knows it, and whosoever thou choose after me let him be but thy politic husband but let my son be thy beloved for he is part of me and i live in him and the difference is but in the number and not in the kind and the lord for ever keep thee in them and give thee comfort in both worlds the lord harry mentioned in this letter was lord henry howard who by his secret correspondence with james before elizabeth's death had succeeded in prejudicing the king's mind against Raleigh. He had ingratiated himself with James by means of the vilest flattery. He became an ally of Cecil's, to whom he was recommended by James, and it seems as if, after his connection with Howard, Cecil's feelings toward Raleigh had steadily grown more hostile. After James's accession, Howard became a member of the council and was made Earl of Northampton in 1604. He continued to pursue Raleigh with bitter animosity. Raleigh speedily recovered from his slight wound. He saw now that his one hope was to succeed in persuading Cobham to retract his false statements regarding him. He managed to have a letter conveyed to Cobham, in which he implored him to speak the truth. This letter was tied round an apple and thrown through the window into the room in the tower where Cobham was imprisoned by Cotterill, an attendant of Raleigh's in the tower. Cutterill brought back the answer which Cobham had thrust under his door, and this Cobham said, I never had conference with you in any treason, nor was I ever moved by you to the things I heretofore accused you of, and for anything I know you are as innocent and as clear from any treasons against the king as is any subject living. God so deal with me and have mercy on my soul as this is true. But even this was not to help Raleigh. And once more, before Raleigh's trial, Cobham had withdrawn his retractation and made new charges against his old friend. End of section 19.